Welcome to another edition of the Membership World podcast. My name is Gordon Glenister and I'm the founder of Membership World. This edition is sponsored by our friends at RD Mobile, the complete membership events engagement platform. Now, in this series, I'll be interviewing CEOs from the membership sector, and they'll be bringing insights and personal stories of their challenges and successes. But before we get started, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast just to make sure that you don't miss a future episode. Now, in today's episode, I'm talking with the CEO of membership digital agency Pixelate, Alex Skinner, and the founder and CEO of RD Mobile, Russ Magnuson. And we're going to be talking all about the digital landscape now facing the membership sector. My name is Alex Skinner. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Pixelate. So I started Pixelate around 20 years ago. We are a creative tech business. So we deliver websites and digital platforms, predominantly for membership associations, but trade associations, professional associations, unions, regulators, people with very, very similar problems. And historically, that was building large web platforms. And in recent years, since 2019, we've been delivering event tech platforms and also ready membership, which is like an all-in-one tech stack that's aimed very much at the mid-market. So yeah, we're predominantly working with associations day in, day out. And that's in the UK, in Europe, but also more recently in North America. Mm, Great to hear. And then uh, Russ, just tell us a little bit about RD Mobile. Sure. RD Mobile is the creator of two mobile solutions, one focused on events and the other focused on year-round engagement, including events. We've been developing apps in the sector for over 10 years now. I want to say 11, 11 or 12 years, uh, maybe. And we're part of Results Direct. Results Direct has been working with organizations in the sector, primarily in North America for over 25 years as a digital agency, website developers, lots of coding kinds of things for integration to industry standard systems. So we've been around for a while and the mobile products have been a really interesting journey for us. So we're glad to be here today to talk about how organizations are using them. Yeah, that's really good to see. And I think if you look back at what happened during the sort of pandemic, it was a tech revolution, not only for our wider society, but definitely for trade associations and professional membership bodies. It's probably fair to say, Alex, a lot of them felt fairly comfortable in the way that they were planning things. And it was a bit of a culture shock for some, some of which, of course, embraced it. Others thought, oh, well, this will only be a short term blip and we'll go back to just postponing our awards event or our CRM system. But then suddenly dawn broke and it was, oh, my God, we need to do some things relatively quickly and and fast. How much do you think these tech solutions played a big part in making quick decisions happen? I think, as you say, culture was the main consideration. You know, we had clients where they made 70% of their income from physical training events. So they were very motivated to sort of change and to think about doing alternative things. Other organizations that were relatively cash rich, very much hunkered down and said, well, actually, we don't really want to do things differently. We're just going to pause certain activity and wait. But I think it is interesting because I think culture played a big part in how rapidly people, certainly clients that were more rapid and more determined in their sort of understanding that they needed to do something differently, I think generally fared better 
the ones that hummed and hard for six months and then finally made the decision, found it more difficult to catch up. But we were also working remotely. We were dealing with all of the sort of elements around HR and people management of how do you manage a large distributed team? Now, we're very fortunate in the sense that we are a global business and we do have a distributed team and we already had all of the tools. So we were relatively early in leaving the office and deciding that this was going to be the new normal, at least for a period of time. But I think what we're seeing now, though, actually, is an awful lot of enterprise IT trying to unpick decisions that were made at speed. So where people were allowed to run off and select systems very, very quickly, really with quite minimal oversight, there are now questions being asked in terms of how do we bring all these things back together? Do we go back out to market again and look for another solution? Specifically around if we want to create a centralized view of the customer for engagement metrics and things like that, if we've got all these sort of disparate, rapidly acquired systems that don't talk to each other, then that brings us forward in some respects from a customer experience standpoint, but sets us backwards from a kind of a metrics and overall data governance standpoint. So I think, yeah, I think it's been interesting. I think we're seeing a second surge, I would suggest, of people reassessing the decisions that they made as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that as well. And I I wonder whether or not we're in a position, you know, my own former association, I remembered we had multiple sites and it was actually cumbersome because like all sorts of systems, you know, you want to have as great an understanding about the member as you possibly can. But there's also a question of, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if we captured that field? Wouldn't it be great if we captured that? Unless you've got all of that data together it's only a very small percentage of information and therefore you know as one of my teams said to me once Gordon why are we asking for that I know it's a nice to have but it's another question that we've got to put on a field for a member when do we start to realize that as associations and partners we've got to be member centric Russ what's your thought about really not just saying member first but really putting it at the center of everything that we do Well, if you go back to the pandemic, which we try never to talk about anymore, we're trying to move past it. But if we go back that far, it really forced organizations to reevaluate everything they were doing, Mm, you know, at least for what we've seen, most revenue for organizations comes from in-person networking and events and that. And so all of a sudden, all that revenue went away. Organizations had to really re-vector how they were going to survive. So, of course, there was staffing changes, decisions made around conserving budgets and whatnot, but also, as Alex and you have said, very rapid decision-making to try some new things, to be innovative in terms of, for example, running online events. I would say the vast majority of organizations we work with all tried one or more online events in 2020, some more successful than others, but that clearly was a rapid process that happened. And some of them charged for it, some of them did not, but it was really kind of like, what can they do to help their members through this Mm. time and how can they stay viable? So I do think a lot of technology choices were made. We've not quite seen the necessarily picking them apart so much, but we were surprised to see, for example, just how few organizations have adopted hybrid events mm-hmm. or have adopted online events as an ongoing thing. They've just gone back to one or the other. Is that what you're saying? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, even I was pretty surprised by the rapid return to in-person events starting in the U.S. in 2021 and by the end of 2021 and into this year elsewhere. It was pretty remarkable the speed with which that happened. I think that's a really interesting point because I think we don't realize what we haven't got what we miss until we haven't got it anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think this connection, this human connection, which I know has been important to have on things like Zoom and some of the other networks, but there's nothing like an in-person event that can easily be replaced. So I don't know if you remember your first event that you went to. It was almost like a surreal experience. The handshake meant more. You realise that we've gone through a pretty crap period of time and, yeah. you know, we've all been in this together. I got hugged by people I would not be expecting. Well, well that's what I was going to ask, actually, the hugging. <laughs> it was like, OK, okay yeah. the hug was fine. But, uh, I mean, well, I think what... one of the things that I was thinking about as well with regard to this is whether we're going to see a degree of seasonality in terms of if in winter we see general spikes in flu and if we accept that COVID probably isn't going away really anytime soon in its various guises, it will just depend on the kind of the association calendar in terms of if you've got certain technical or relatively academic type events where it is consumption of content predominantly rather than some more networking or technical acquisition or, or product acquisition type events that those type events will persist. But I do think as well that our experience of ones that have been more successful are the ones where if the event is very, very clearly academic, where it's people doing sort of subject matter presentations and the event attendees have a CPD requirement or they need for their work to learn about this new topic, then I think that people are generally more determined to attend these virtual events. But I mean, certainly for us, when you look at events that are people considering new platforms or part learning, part new systems acquisition, I think for a lot of suppliers, the digital event experience in terms of some makeshift virtual stand or 3D yeah. this or 3D that. I think generally speaking, I don't know what Russ's experience is, but for me, those just really haven't worked. I Absolutely. Think 100%. Totally agree with you. No, I mean, the avatar thing, and, and maybe they will evolve, but as somebody involved in the events support industry as well, I attended quite a few of those. And yes, it'd be interesting to get your view, Russ, but I wasn't overly supportive of that. What's your take on it? They were gimmicky at the time, and now they're gimmicky and less interesting. I just don't think they were ever going to go anywhere. Now, certainly we saw a lot of people show up at our door saying, oh, we need avatars, we need three-dimensional, and we were kind of like, why? How is that going to really change things? But I think the underlying thing is people want to get together in person. It's hard to necessarily measure the value of that, but it is a high value thing. You know, I would say we were very surprised that there wasn't more, at least right now, now it's only 2022, but there wasn't more of an adoption of hybrid or even online for certain kinds of things, just because of the um, cost efficiency and time and travel and of course, you know, here in the U.S., most people are flying to events, you know, so it's a much bigger investment and people were, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go. 
Well, is that really because of shared learning? Is that because of networking? Is it because of the things that perhaps we've now come to realise is super important? You know, when I always talk about why do people join an association, a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. into a similar tribe comes up always sort of top of the list. Mm -hmm. So I think being able to be in those physical environments, I think is still very important. This podcast is sponsored by RD Mobile, providing events and member engagement solutions used by organizations worldwide. RD Mobile can help your organization deliver value at your next virtual or in-person event and throughout the year. Visit us at rdmobile.com to learn more. I'd like to ask you, Alex, I've been to quite a few physical events Mm. and what I have noticed relatively is an absence of younger people, largely. It is also a challenge or has been for the association and membership community to encourage young people to join them, to stay with them. And you'd have thought that certainly with an online environment, that is a natural home for many. I mean, I'm being a bit dismissive of all younger people here. But generally, what sort of trends do you see within organisations when it comes to adopting new members from a young crowd? Well, I think it's a combination of things. So, I mean, I think in terms of getting people to attend physical events, I think younger members is definitely a problem. Also, I think in terms of ones that maybe will continue to have hybrid is it also depends how much of an international audience you have and whether you have people from the global south, which is effectively Latin America, sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, where you say, okay, we might have pricing that has indexation in it in terms to say, we're going to charge you a different amount of money if you're coming from the Philippines versus if you're coming from North America, because you simply will not have the income disparity. And you also see organizations that have grants for people from low income countries to come along and be able to attend the event because they are naturally restrictive by virtue of the cost to travel. I mean, I think if you're talking UK centric, US centric, there's not the same income disparity across a profession, perhaps. But I think also it's about with younger people, it's more a case of where is their instinct about where they are going to go to find information. Now, if my instinct is to go and find a professional body or to join the IOD, perhaps, or go to the library, I'm not sure I would do that. Whereas a younger person's instinct might be to look online or ask Siri. Then getting younger people to participate is about convincing them of the value of participation. And I'm not sure that's exclusively events. I would say that's a problem for membership organizations in general, in terms of if it isn't the case of you need to be a member, otherwise you can't be an optician. Obviously, the regulated professions and chartered professions where you're simply going to struggle to get a job if you're not a member. Mm. I think outside of those where it's optional, I think, you know, membership organisations are going to have to rethink their whole value proposition, really. But yeah, I mean, I'd echo the same point, which is you do tend to see slightly older people attending events, maybe slightly more senior that, you know, can have those sort of travel budgets and the hotel budgets and other things. But yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I believe this issue is probably the biggest somewhat not quite totally hidden threat Mm -hmm. facing member organizations is that interest in that generation. And to echo a little bit of what Alex said, for a long, long time, member organizations were keepers of the sacred knowledge. That's not true anymore. Indeed. And they were the only way to network with peers. That's not true 
anymore either. And so you have this whole group of people that's very adept at doing things online, creating other kinds of networking opportunities. This is probably the biggest threat, I think, to the business of membership organizations that's been around in a generation. I think so too. And obviously, because of the work I do with sort of the influencer space, I can absolutely understand and see that for myself and how they have amassed their own audiences within these collective groups, whether they be Facebook, LinkedIn, Discord, or many others, and do so um, very inexpensively, you know, or or free. And for some industries, it's a real problem because, I mean, it's not just membership organizations traditionally owned the relationships they were the place you would go to meet people and obviously there's the threat of the fact that people are having these conversations on whatsapp or facebook or linkedin or wherever else and the association is just a participant in the room they're no more or no less of an influencer on the community than anybody else is a problem i think from a perspective of getting to a point where organizations are producing really good quality content that they're producing short form video that they're getting that information out onto the social channels, that they have an influencer strategy, for example. When you talk to membership associations, they're still trying to make sure that they can get the subscriptions out on time and make sure that they add up. You know, we're talking chalk and cheese in terms of level of sophistication. I know. But one thing I did feel was important, and we talked about it earlier, about that sort of uh, experiential impact of when you came back to see people. Again, my own experiences, some of the best ways to engage members was through social events. And I wondered whether or not we're going to start to see more of those where people feel connected, not on a just a, a name of a company or you come to a conference, mm. but wine tasting events that bring people together on a human to human level. Mm. What's your thoughts on that type of activity? Those types of events have always been popular. Certainly as we return back to in-person things, they were enormously popular. I mm. mean, the people, <laughs> you know, were hugging, as Alex yeah. said. Yeah, well, it's an emotional and, experience, isn't it? It's not just, yeah. it's Russ, it's, it's Alex. You know, we're good friends together. And that, of course, is another reason why people stay connected to their organization because it, then it doesn't just become the authoritative body. It becomes a collective of individuals you like, trust, and know. Yeah, and it goes back to that value proposition of the networking, of the connection, of being part of the tribe. You know, at a happy hour, or a wine reception, I probably have more interesting conversations than I've had throughout the rest of the day. They're free-flowing, you can move around, When you compare that to sitting in rooms, watching presentations and, you know, which is all very kind of structured, those social opportunities are probably more valuable for many more people in terms of just their professional connection. You can't really decouple the two. You can't decouple that human need for social connection from being in my professional tribe. Yeah. I mean, I remember, and I mentioned things like golf days, often what some associations would do, they'd have an annual golf day, or they would bolt that onto a conference, or indeed, it might be an awards dinner where there's an overnight and there's something. And I know people's time is precious now more than ever. But I think it's another reason for people to reconnect with their peers. I'm just using my own experience. I remember the annual BPMA Christmas lunch. And pretty much every year that would sell out. Mm. 
because also we raised a lot of money for charity. People felt good about that. They felt good and there was a sense of shared ownership. It wasn't so much as, right, Mr. Association, what are you going to do for us so that you live or die by the renewal invoice, which I think, sadly, some associations still struggle with at times. But, you know, if you've got a really good engaged community that's based around thought leadership, content and social interaction, then that renewal invoice should almost be passed through, shouldn't it? Maybe the path to bringing back in this younger generation mm. as they mature a little bit, which makes me feel very old to say that, but as they <laughs> mature in their professional development, they're going to realize that there's value to some of these activities that before maybe they felt were easy to ignore, to dismiss. I think failure would be a good thing to hone that around because I think one of the problems with you know talking about getting relaxed right in terms of in a golf day setting or a lunch or a drinks you know a lot of the time people relax and ultimately people bond over similar experiences I think one of the problems with this traditional seminar format or conference format is there's a lot of these lofty presentations that are talking about AI or they're talking about engagement or they're talking about how we've achieved this amazing thing. And ultimately, you know, we're all showing off to each other about how great everything is. But I think one of the things that people can actually really bond over, and there was a really good session in the US conference around this thing called Fail Fest, which I think the ASAE did, where people from big organizations would talk about what they did when things went wrong. And, and I think, and yeah. I think one of the problems that we have in terms of especially younger people, they need to understand that it's not all unicorns and rainbows. And mm. they need to understand that you will come across hard times and actually learning from peers around how to deal with adversity within your working life. And those conversations that have nothing to do with membership. So, you know, I can have a conversation with the CEO over a glass of wine where we're discussing a problem that he's got from a legal standpoint, an HR standpoint, it's got absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with membership, but the conversation was still valuable, right? Because we're solving very, very similar problems, even though we're from different industries. So I think that is potentially one place where membership organisations and physical organisations with Chatham House rules can really help because we know online that there's an awful lot of bragging. There's an awful lot of here's the five tips of a highly effective membership manager. And it's all sort mm. of, you know, I call Facebook brag book because it is yeah. just that sort of stuff. And maybe that's where some of the traditional organizations can be a bit more confidently humble in the stuff that they're putting out. That's talking about when you do make mistakes or you do hit on hard times, learn from your peers, get that mentorship, get that support more so than what you're going to get online, which is, people telling you how wonderful their lives are and how great they are, right? Which is... Yeah. No, no, I hear you. I hear you. To sort of close then, what do you think are going to be some of the big changes in the next two or three years, whether they be tech or whether they just be with the way in which membership organisations are being structured? And I know you've got a report out, Alex, haven't you, coming up soon. You did quite an extensive yep. survey, so really keen to see how that's going to play out and interested to see your findings. But more generally, what do you think? What's your own gut feel, both of you? Perhaps if I start with uh, Russ, what do you think are going to be some of the big changes? I think we're already seeing them. The pandemic may have accelerated some of those trends. I don't know if it tangibly changed them, but it may have sped them up. And that was organizations adapting to the reality that what was valuable 10, 
20 years ago is no longer enough to retain, to attract and retain those members mm. and how they're going to create new kinds of value for those members. And of course, that's in providing what we would call experiences versus just events, providing connection versus just a member directory and things like that. So it's a, it's a more sophisticated honing in on the true reasons why members join. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, stuff like member mentoring. So when somebody joins and proper onboarding, so people feel welcomed. And just because we all know everybody, the new person coming in, it's like they don't know everybody. And and if they don't know anybody and they feel isolated, then they're not going to stay, are they? So that's that whole enriching experience of making them feel part of something or giving them an opportunity to be part of a focus group or something that's specifically aligned to what their needs are. I was going to ask you, Alex, about uh, stuff like artificial intelligence and what part that's going to play with previous members have behaved in this way. So there's a good chance they're going to behave in a future way like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a Luddite's the wrong word. I think there's definitely a case for AI. And look, I mean, I think AI is both fascinating, but also deeply, deeply scary. And, you know, I think the organizational country that achieves true AI first is going to have a significant advantage over other countries. So I think for the average membership association, they don't have the sophistication or quality of data in a lot of cases to really take advantage of AI. I think a lot of the time when people talk about AI, I mean, we have a very, very comprehensive sort of rules engine that that we could market as AI. And we could say that you can ultimately, through a series of if this and else that, you can come up with some quite sophisticated experiences for members. We have instances around translation. We have instances around extraction of meaning from natural language articles where, you know, on the basis of this, you know, we recommend that. I think one of the problems also, though, you've got implicit and explicit signals, right? So I can be clicking around, looking at various different articles, looking at different things, and you can infer that I'm interested in certain topics, but I could just be lost. So sometimes there's those sort of temptation to try and get clever. Whereas I think if you sort of use implicit signals to then say, it seems that you're interested in this topic, remember you can explicitly update this profile, then we tend to get better results. But my view at the moment is that a lot of associations have just got bigger problems. They've just got more fundamental things that they need to focus their attention on. But actually, AI is nice and shiny, and we all love a bit of demo candy. It's a little bit like people saying, I want an intranet, but they've got no real clear view as to why they want one. They just, Mm. you know, somebody in the board has said that they should have one. So yeah, I would say AI is going to increasingly become more relevant but only once you reach a level of organizational maturity from a digital platform standpoint that it's going to give you that extra 10% or give you that extra 20%, not as a silver bullet to replace deficiencies elsewhere in the organization, I'd say. Mm, Great, super. All right, so it's been a pleasure as always to speak to you both. And uh, thanks again for joining us on the Membership World Podcast. That's it for another edition of the Membership World Podcast. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook. And if you want to ask me any particular questions, then please let me know. Once again, a reminder to hit subscribe. And if you feel like it, please do give us a nice review as it makes a huge difference. 
If you want to take part in any of the Membership World programs I run or want to receive any great content, please register on the Membership World website. It's free to anyone running membership bodies or communities. You can also download the amazing reports we've all done for free as well. Thanks again to our sponsor RD Mobile and my producer Neil Whiteside from Freedom One. And until next time, from me, Gordon Bannister, it's bye for now.